morning we're going to be in 1 John chapter 4, and verses 10, uh, 9 and 10 say this, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we love God, but that he loves us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This morning, we're going to celebrate communion together as a way to remember Jesus' love for us. When Jesus gathered for the Passover meal, they took bread without yeast and wine and broke it. And he said, this Passover meal, this celebration is now about me. It's not just about the history of the Jewish people being redeemed from death. Now it's about all people everywhere being redeemed from death. And then he took it and he said something so curious. He said, do this to remember and I think about that all the time. Our tendency is to forget Jesus and to forget Jesus' love for us. And so when we take communion today, in just a minute as we take this bread and this juice, what we're remembering is that we have a God who loves us, a God who's for us and not against us, a God who's willing to sacrifice everything so that we might know him, experience his love, and live out his love in our world. And so Jesus gathered his closest followers and he took the bread. And you can go ahead and open up your package. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then he passed around a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood, the blood of the new promise. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that you came into our world. You didn't leave us alone in sin and darkness and death. But you came in to reclaim your rightful throne on this planet and invite us to live in your kingdom. Thank you for your death and your life and your resurrection and your ascension. Thank you that you invite us to become apprentices of your way of life, to live and love like you. God, thank you for this reminder when we just stop for a moment and we remember your broken body and your spilled blood as testaments for because of your love for us. God, I'm so grateful that even when we don't believe in you, you believe in us and you love us and you're reaching out for us. I pray all these things like believe in Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, guys, it's almost that time of the year again. Hallmark movie time. Anybody a Hallmark movie fan? Okay, a couple of you. My wife, Darby, is the world's biggest, I think, Hallmark movie fan. Uh, she actually downloads this app and subscribes to it, like, from October to January, and then she cancels it. But it allows her to watch all the Hallmark movies whenever she wants, and she can, like, TiVo on, them on the app. And So this is what happens in our home between October and January. Darby sits on the couch and watches hours of Hallmark movies. I sit next to her and play my Nintendo Switch, uh, so that at least I'm there with her, but I don't really enjoy it that much. But if you've never seen a Hallmark movie, there's going to be some spoilers. And not just for one Hallmark movie, they all have the same plot. So this spoils them all. Every single one of them starts with an overworked, emotionally unavailable protagonist who has her entire life rearranged when she goes to a small town, she meets a kind and handsome man and falls in love. Everything in her life changes after that. 
By the end of the movie, she leaves the big city for the small town. She leaves her high-stress job for a simple one like at a bakery or a flower shop. And her entire life has changed because she fell in love. That's crazy unrealistic, right? Maybe, maybe not. Think about it. Darby's whole life changed when she, uh, she married me. She's like, this isn't Georgia anymore. Like, what are we doing in Philadelphia? Um, being in love or just simply loving people or being loved by people will radically redirect your life. If you want to go in a new direction, love someone or be loved by someone. Being loved will shape you out of your routine. It will inconvenience you, but it will also delight you. It will bring you joy, and it will surprise you. Love is a wonder. And that's what we're talking about in this, uh, this week. We're talking about how love is a wonder. A wonder that I believe reveals God. Now, our Western culture believes that love, especially romantic love, is magical. If you talk to people about love or falling in love or about romance, they start to use all these magical terms like the stars aligned, it was such a magical moment, it was so special. Even people who aren't religious will talk about finding their soulmate or how it was the perfect night or how all these factors came together. I remember I had known Darby for a couple of years and uh, we were just friends, kind of acquaintances, and I finally got up the courage to ask her out. And uh, we went out on a date, and I found out I had just felt God directing me to start a church. And Darby said, oh yeah, I work for an organization that starts churches. Have you heard of that? I'm like, yeah, that's what I want to do. You know, it was one of those, like, weird moments. You know, she had been in a job that had given her a love for church planting, a love that church planting would take away. But no, I'm just kidding. And then I had felt God leading me that, and all of a sudden it was like, what's the chances that we would go sit down on a date together? Like, how weird is that? Um, but as people start to talk about their stories, they most, almost always notice some type of providence in their romance. Even if they're not religious at all, they start saying, you know, the universe somehow aligned or some type of force aligned. If the world is all time and chance, then that means there's no right person for you. There is no providence in your romance. It's simply a happy accident. But that's not the way any of us talk about it. Even completely secular people, when they talk about love, they will believe that some force for good was involved in their story. Otherwise, it cheapens what we feel. When you feel love, when you love or are loved, you're like, there's something beyond just these simple explanations. There's something spiritual happening. Now, from a purely evolutionary standpoint, we exist to multiply our genes to preserve our species. That's our evolutionary purpose. From an evolutionary standpoint, you can have many sexual partners because humans just want to multiply their genes and it doesn't matter how you do it. But none of us are really satisfied with that. Like, I thought back to the, uh, the show, anybody remember How I Met Your Mother? The sitcom, um, Barney on there was a chronic womanizer. And even Barney, he eventually reached a point in the series where he's like, I'm sick of all this meaningless sex. I want to have a real relationship with somebody. What is that? Like there's something in us where we recognize we want more than just multiplying our genes. We want to find somebody who loves us, who fulfills us, someone who is more than just a sexual partner. We want a soulmate. Love in all forms insists that there is more to life than we can just Smell and touch. 
Love compels a mother to lay down her life for her children. Love compels a father to run into a burning building, or a husband to run into a burning building for his wife. Love compels a spouse to care for their spouse who is disabled. Our culture recognizes that love is spiritual, even if they deny spirituality. If you want to know how our modern culture feels about something, you don't go to the universities. Like where most people develop their philosophies and worldview about life is through entertainment. That's where you can kind of get a sense for what culture is thinking and feeling. The general masses learn their worldview through what they watch and what they listen to. Um, the arts for thousands of years have struggled in trying to define love. Like we could go back thousands of years across human civilizations and plays and poems and songs and statements from philosophers and artists have all been written on love. And yet, despite all the brilliance of all these writers and thinkers and poet, poets, some of the brightest musicians and minds uh, exploring this theme, we've yet to exhaust it. And it's a good thing, right? Because Adele or Taylor Swift wouldn't be able to release another CD. They'd be like, we said everything about love already. We're done. You know, that's all we've got. And yet, the next album comes out and we're like, Adele still has more songs to sing about love. She hasn't exhausted the subject. There's still more to it. Why is that? After thousands of years, we've yet to fully tap love. We've yet to say, well, we said everything about it. We're done. We can move on to something else, right? There's something so deep about love that if we spent the rest of humanity's existence talking about it and exploring about it, we wouldn't reach the end of it. Now, there is a reaction in our brain when we love. There is physical things that are happening, but there's so much more than just brain chemistry at work. Did you know at the beginning of a romantic relationship, your brain actually re releases cortisol, which is kind of the anxiety-inducing, stress-inducing, fight-or-flight chemical hormone in our brain. That's why at the beginning of a relationship, you have butterflies in your stomach, and you can't eat, you feel sick, you're like got sweaty bones, and you're so nervous, you know? That's all because your brain is in fight-or-flight mode, and it's re releasing cortisol. Eventually, as your love develops, your, um, the cortisol actually goes away and your brain produces more of the positive, pleasant hormones, safe, comfortable, warm feeling, fuzzy hormones that we think of when we're associated with love. The brain also though, when you're falling in love or first experiencing love, deactivates the amygdala. Now the amygdala is a part of your brain that recognizes fear and dangerous situations. Teenagers always have their amygdala turned off, right? My nephew, he just sent me a video of him climbing up his uh, sister's uh, swing chain all the way up into this tree that was much too high, you know, and he's swinging around up there, but he had his cell phone on the ground so he could record it and put it on TikTok, and he sent it to me, and I'm like, he's gonna break his arm, again. It's like, how many times has it been? It's been many, many times, because his amygdala's turned off, right? But the amygdala, when you're falling in love or experiencing love, it, reduces its functionality so that you can take the risk to love somebody. Because it is a risk. But that's also why when you look back and you're like, why did I date her? She was terrible. Why did I date him? He was terrible. You're a big love. It was shut down. So you did foolish, dangerous things. 
Eventually, though, in the relationship, your brain produces dopamine and oxytocin, uh, which are the feel-good, uh, pleasure parts of your brain, these chemicals that make you feel good. In fact, researchers have found that even looking at a picture of someone you loved lights up the pleasure centers in your brain while reducing the pain receptacles in your brain. Just looking at a picture of someone you loved increases your sense of pleasure and reduces your sense of pain. Loving people allows you to enjoy more and hurt less. Studies have also found that people who share a bed develop synchronized heart rhythms, and people in a romantic relationship will align their breathing patterns. So Darby, I'm so sorry, as someone with asthma, this is why you never get any sleep, because I'm struggling for breath and I just pass that on to you, so sorry about that. Close proximity to the people we love transforms us. Not just the way we think, the way our very bodies operate. Who you love and who you're loved by changes who you are. We spend so much of our time and energy in information transference. Like if we could learn the right things, then we become the right people. But it is proximity to love that changes people. You want to change who you are? Gather with different people who love you. Love different people. Now, if I said love is the most powerful force in the universe, very few people would disagree with me. If I just did a survey across the world, across religions, across education levels, if I said, is love the most powerful force in the universe, most people would say yes. Religious and non-religious people would agree that the meaning of life is to love and be loved, to become people of love. Almost everybody on earth agrees about this. What we disagree about is how you become a person of love. How do you become a person of love? How do you become someone that people enjoy loving and that you're someone who loves people that you encounter? The Christian faith says we become people of love by becoming apprentices of Jesus. By spending time with Jesus and his love, it changes who we are and we become people of love. Let's read 1 John 7 through uh, 1 John chapter 4, 17 12. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is. Now, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. God is love. After spending a lifetime, John's an older man now, after spending a lifetime dwelling on the teachings of Jesus and thinking about what Jesus said and what it was like to be with him and who God is, John makes this profound statement, God is love. I think we would all agree humanity is at its best when it loves. Humanity is at its worst when it hates. When we affirm that, what we are saying is humanity is at its best when it is like God. Because God is love. And humanity is at its worst when it is not like God, when it's acting in opposition to God. Because God is love, hates the opposite of him. Now, John here does not say love is God. 
That's sometimes what people say. Love is God. What he says is God is love. Now, if love is God, then love defines what God is like. But if God is love, God defines what love is like. Now, we use the word love very loosely in our English language. I think I have a picture up here, but I love tacos. And I love board games. I, I'm obsessed with board games. But I also love Darby. And I love Darby much differently, much deeper than these other two things. Right? Good yeah, good sense. Um, Darby is loved on a much deeper level than I love tacos or board games. And I love tacos. I love board games. But how I love Darby is completely different. Now, in our English language, we use the same word for all three. That's not a very precise that's not a very precise language because there are very different things going on here. Um, the Greek language that the New Testament was written in is much more precise. And so I thought it would be fun to do like a pop quiz. Here's the seven Greek words that are used for love. We just say, I love tacos. I love board games. I love Darby. But they actually have seven different words. Um, pop quiz. Does anybody know? what eros in Greek means. Okay, so that was romantic love or sexual love. Romantic. That's what our society usually thinks of when we think of love. How about pragma? It's practical love. This is like, I love tacos because tacos taste good. And they make me feel happy and I enjoy eating them. It's a very practical it can also be like you work with a coworker and they get a lot of work done, so you love your coworker because they're a good hard worker, they're a good teammate. It's a practical. Practical. How about Plutus? I don't even remember this one. I gotta look back in there. It's a it's a flirty love. It's like you don't want to really make any commitment, but you just want to kind of be flirty, and uh, it's never going to go anywhere or mean anything. How about Storge? <laughs> this is the love for a friend. Like when you really love a friend, you don't want to have a romance with them. It's not about what they practically bring to the situation, but you have a real love for them. Mania, we should know this one. This is a crazy love. This is an obsessive love. This is like a stalker love. They love them, but it's not safe. It's unhealthy. Filet. Brotherly love or family love. It's love for a family. Agape. It's selfless, altruistic love. It's the purest form of love. It's love that doesn't need to be reciprocated or returned in any way. You'll do what's best for someone even at great cost to yourself. Now, one of the most frustrating elements of our modern society is our tendency to assume all love is romantic or sexual love. But what John is saying, what we can't see in our imprecise English translations because we only have one word for love. What John is saying when he says God is love, he is saying in the Greek original text that we translated into English, it says God is a God. He's not saying that God is all types of love. He's saying that God is the purest form of love. When we practice selfless, altruistic love, when we experience selfless, selfless 
altruistic love, we're experiencing a glimpse of the transcendent God, Yahweh. We're experiencing a glimpse of God. Any love we experience is a shadow cast from God's perfect love. Now, the Christian faith says the center of all reality is a relationship. Every other religion says God created in order to be served. Uh, if you read the ancient Babylonian myths, even to more modern gods, they all say something like this. We create because we need lower people to serve us, to praise us, to give us something. Christianity presents a God who created in order to love. He made people to share in his love. He created to expand his love. That's a very different reason to create. In eternity past, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all loved each other and lived in perfect unity. I remember somebody asked one time, what was God doing before creation? He was spending time with the people he loved the best. Like, imagine if you're on vacation with the people you love best. Would you ever want that to end? No, you want that to go on and on. That's what God was doing. He wasn't bored. He wasn't lonely. The Father, Son, and Spirit were living in perfect harmony and unity, sharing in joy in each other's presence. They created in order to share their love with others because it was too good to keep to themselves. The function and form of love reveals God when we love. Especially when we love sacrificially or unselfishly, we sense the presence of God. That's why love is so powerful. Because when we love like God loves, he's a part of it. The mysterious power of love is because love is a piece of who God is that he's sharing with the cosmos, that he's built into his creation. Love is beyond fully figuring out. Adele hasn't, you know, written everything there is to say about love. Taylor Swift hasn't said it all yet because God is love. It is part of his infinite and boundless nature. So we're never going to reach the bottom of love because we can never reach the full depth of who God is. Our world's pretty messed up, though, right? It's messed up. We've got sickness and greed and violence and death, but there's still love. Isn't it remarkable if we're in just a purely materialistic world? If it's just all we live, you die, and nothing else matters. Isn't it amazing that love even exists? I sent out this week the clip from Interstellar um, where these two scientists are talking. They're like, what is the social utility of love after people die? Yes, while it's here, maybe it makes better societies so that the species can survive. But you love people who have even died. What's the point of that? Like, there's something, there's something going on that we have love in a world where so much else is broken and messed up. <clears throat> it's quite remarkable that despite all the evil and darkness in our world, love doesn't die out. Love just keeps going. In every generation, there's people who sacrifice, um, unselfishly sacrifice for it. Um, a third of the world's population was infected in the 1918 pandemic. They estimate 15 to 100 million people died. The estimates they're not quite sure about because numbers weren't kept as well back then. Um, 675,000 Americans died. Now, Philadelphia was one of the worst hit cities in the entire United States in terms of death, uh, in terms of death rates. All beds in the city's 31 hospitals in 1918 were filled, according to the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing. Um, 
Many people just stayed in their homes because the hospitals were full, or they were so sick they couldn't even go out to get medical help. Thankfully, in 1886, Helen Carnan Jenks had created the Visiting Nurse Society of Philadelphia. They're still around today. Anybody heard of the Visiting Nurse Society of Philadelphia? Well, back in the late 1800s and into the early 1900s, she would gather nurses and send them out to check in on people in their homes. During the 1918 pandemic, each nurse was handling a whopping 20 to 30 cases a day, many of which were families. Historians record many stories like the one that I'm going to share with you today. In one home in the 1918 pandemic in Philadelphia, uh, one of these visiting nurses came in, found in a crib beside the mother's bed a six-week-old baby who had not been bathed for four days and was wet and cold. The family had no cold. The mom and dad were both sick. The three well children were shivering and wet and cold. There was no coal, there was no food. The nurse gave care to the sick and bathed and fed the baby. She made a wood fire on the stove and prepared food for the other children. The nurse then went door to door until she could find a kind neighbor on the street to continue to look after the children after she left. And day after day, these nurses were having 20 to 30 encounters like this in 1980. People who were altruistically, sacrificially, unselfishly loving others. I think myself, why do that? They could have got sick. They weren't being paid well. It was very much like the organization had a little bit of money, but it was a lot of volunteer work. Why do humans care for other humans like that? And then when it happens, when I read that story, something moved inside of me. It moved inside of me too. What is that? Why do we love to hear about other humans acting with this divine-like love? The best humans are ordinary humans led by love. Humanity is at its best when it loves their neighbors like God loves us. In this passage, Jesus, uh, John is really riffing on Jesus' summation of the entire Jewish law. In Matthew 22, 37-39, Jesus said, This is the whole law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. When we encounter the love of God, when we spend time in that love, it changes us. When we become students of Jesus, we begin to read about the way he treated people and the things that he said and taught. We spend time in silence and solitude and prayer. His love begins to change the way that we love our love begins to move from selfish, self-interested love into agape, altruistic, unselfish love. Or I might say it like this, being with Jesus makes us become like Jesus so that we can do what Jesus did. When we struggle to love our neighbor, our difficult co-worker, our friend, our family member, or our spouse, it's because we have forgotten how deeply God loves us. So I communion is so important, it's a moment to stop and remember Jesus loves me enough to trade the worst part of myself for the best part of himself. Sometimes when we've been hurt by the fallout of love, or we've lost someone we love, we think quite logically it doesn't make sense to love at all. If we love someone well, they'll eventually disappoint us, or maybe we've been betrayed by someone who said that they loved us, but they just 
misuse that word to control us, manipulate us, or abuse us. What's the point of love if it doesn't last? Um, I think we've all asked that point, at, uh, that question at some point, when we've been deeply hurt by love. In those moments, I like to remind myself that while love may have an end date in the way we measure minutes, a moment of loving and being loved taps into the eternal nature of God. And the love of Jesus was so good that one day all death will be rolled back on itself. While the object of our affection may die or disappoint, the love that we feel when people love us like God loves us reminds us that a loving God is always very close and his love never disappoints. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that we can know your love. We deserve to be hated and destroyed. Because God, I do so much to hurt your planet and hurt other people who bury your image. And yet, you choose to show me love. And as you over and over again show me love when I don't deserve it, it begins to change me so that I want to show that same love to others when they don't. Help us to become agents of love in a world that so quickly turns to outrage and hate. Lord, I think what would stand out in our culture, in our world today, is people who genuinely love when it gives no benefit to themselves. Help us to love like you loved us. Help us to be moved by the love we experience and remember that it's a glimpse. It's a, it's a tiny look at your love 